should come up on the screen, and we're going to read that together uh, this morning. We're going to read it, we're going to pray, and then we'll get into it. Psalm 110. Here we go. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, you have loved us everlastingly, unchangeably. May we love you as we are loved. You have given yourself for us. May we give ourselves to you. You have died for us. May we live for you in every moment of our time, in every movement of our minds, in every pulse of our hearts. May we never dally with the world and its allurements, but walk by your side, listen to your voice, be clothed with your graces, and adorned with your righteousness. Amen. You'd have to say that uh, one of the wildest things of the 21st century has been the election of Donald Trump as president of the US. There was even a Simpsons episode uh, that depicted Donald Trump becoming president, you know, the, the great prophecies of the Simpsons. Uh, you know, you have uh, Donald Trump's Twitter posts, the amount of fun people making memes about him, the things he said. He's got the strange association with the color orange. Uh, he's got the accent. He's got those hand gestures and the hairstyle. Donald Trump has dominated the scene over the past decade. We're going to avoid all the politics this morning, uh, whether he's been primarily a force for good or evil. We're just going to avoid all of that and put it to one side. But just notice one thing about Donald Trump, the Donald, and that is that he is incredibly divisive. I can't think of anyone in recent history who's been as divisive as Donald Trump. Some people think he's the very root of evil. Others think of him as some kind of saviour for the Western world. And no one really knows whether to bring him up over Christmas lunch or not. He divides people. Some people are divisive for all the wrong reasons. They promote suspicion and gossip and they demand a blind loyalty and manipulate you. 
They can divide and destroy something that is otherwise good and wholesome. But then there are people who are divisive precisely because they are good. Their goodness acts as a spotlight on what is wicked. They set things right when people have become comfortable with things, taking shortcuts, compromise and corruption. Psalm 110 presents a figure who is utterly divisive. There's no fence sitters. There's no middle ground. You will notice in the psalm, uh, those who give themselves freely to this figure, people ready to give up everything in service of their cause. And then on the other hand, it speaks of his enemies, those who are completely opposed to him. It knows nothing of a middle ground. Psalm 110 speaks of a ruler, a powerful king, a warrior. And it's the promise given to David, the author of this psalm, the promise, no doubt, that's in his heart and mind as he writes this psalm. And it's a promise that's found in 2 Samuel 7. It says these words, this is God speaking to David through the prophet Nathan, and he says this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when David dies, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. See, God promises to establish the kingdom of David's offspring, someone who comes from the line of his children and his children's children and so on. He will establish his kingdom and he will establish it forever. And Psalm 110 is a meditation on that promise. So, knowing this problem, uh, promise, knowing that this promise is in the background, that a didn't from David, his offspring, would reign as a king forever, here's the shocking surprise of Psalm 110. The thing that would have yanked its original hearers out of autopilot. The psalm speaks of this future king as David's Lord. It's not of his son, not of his offspring or his descendant, but of David's Lord. We're in our Christmas series here. Hope is here. We've recognized that the world we live in is not particularly hopeful. The reasons for fear and anxiety are vast. While at the same time, hope is one of those needs of the human soul. Without it, the human soul shrivels and becomes cynical. But with it, people thrive and are full of joy. And listen, this morning we're getting right to the bottom of it. As we contemplate together this figure of Psalm 110, this utterly divisive figure, as we grasp the reality of what's here before us, our hope will rise.
we will find hope for our souls. And so our hearts will be filled with joy. To get us there, we need to see three things. The first one, the rule of David's Lord. The second one, the priesthood of David's Lord. And lastly, the hope of David's Lord. To start, the rule of David's Lord. The boundaries of the realm of this Lord's rule are worldwide. I wonder if you noticed that in the psalm as it was read. Verse 6 mentions the nations and the whole earth, the wide earth, presented here as a king not only of Israel, the nation of his birth, but the whole earth. Verse 1 tells us that he's seated at the right hand of the Lord in heaven. Seems now is as good a time as any. There are two lords referred to in this psalm, and they're both there mentioned in the first line of the psalm. One is written normally, and it's a word used to describe a position of authority. It's, it's a master. Think of a master of a household who has people who he manages and directs. Then the other is written in all caps. It's not just for emphasis, and it's not just the writer telling you to speak louder when you read those words. It's actually a technical word used throughout the Old Testament. It's, it's actually referring to the personal name of the Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, but particularly as the God who has revealed himself personally to the nation of Israel. It's, it's a word that's used to translate the Hebrew word Yahweh. So this Lord... This master of David is seated in closest proximity to Yahweh. Now look at verse 2. The Lord, Yahweh, sends forth from Zion. Zion being the very place where Yahweh exists. The holy mountain, the holy city where, where God reigns. The creator of heaven and earth, the redeeming God of Israel sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. The mighty scepter being the symbol of rule and dominion, the instrument of kingly rule and dominion. So let's try to pull this together here, because that's really important. This is the rule of the almighty God, Yahweh, reigning in Zion, sending forth your mighty scepter. Sending forth the reign of David's Lord. So here's a fun question. Whose rule is it? Is it God's rule? Or is it David's Lord's rule? To put it another way, is it a divine rule? Or is it a human rule? And here's the point. The rule of David's Lord, this human king who God promised would be the descendant of David, is a divine ruler. David's Lord holds the mighty scepter of divine power and rule. Yes, he's a human ruler, he's a descendant of David but he's also somehow divine 
in his rule. There's no surprises here that the, uh, about who the identity of David's Lord is. This is referring to the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord Jesus, who is both the de- descendant of David, one who would come after David is dead and buried, but also David's Lord. Jesus himself in the Gospel of Mark would quote 110, uh, Psalm 110 to describe himself. And more than that, the New Testament is littered with language of Psalm 110 as it describes Jesus. It's one of the scriptures that forms the basis of how we understand the nature of who Jesus is. His very essence. See, Jesus is both fully human. He's the flesh and blood descendant of David. He he breathed air through his nostrils. He got tired and hungry. He suffered. But also, Jesus is fully divine. He is, in essence, the fullness of the divine nature. Which means Jesus was present before the creation of the universe. Jesus is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. He is creator and sustainer of the universe. And this Jesus is the Jesus we turn our attention to at Christmas. That the divine essence, the divine Son of God, God only God, takes on the existence of a microscopic human embryo. He exists in a woman's womb, lives as a knee-grazing little boy, grows up as a human person. Now the divine son existing as a human person eternally. This is David's Lord. This is the one David writes this psalm about. He's the one who sits at the right hand of the Lord Almighty. So, is it any surprise that the rule and reign of this Lord is absolute? See, verse 1 tells us that every one of his enemies will be made to be his footstool thing he places his feet on at the end of a hard day. Verse 6 tells us that he shatters kings, executes judgment, and he does so unopposed. And verse 7, as a conquering ruler, he drinks water from the brook by the way, and he lifts up his head. This is the picture of a victorious king. And it's this victorious king who's a divisive king. See, verse 2, his scepter goes forth in the midst of enemies. Verse 5 and 6, he's shattering kings. He's executing judgment. He's shattering chiefs. 
See, the psalm speaks of those who have set themselves against him. And so this king brings judgment against them. But on the other hand, verse 3, we see described those who give themselves freely to this king. Verse 3 says these words, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. People are like the womb of the morning, uh, much like the children who will be awake at 5 a.m. tomorrow morning. The womb of the morning that gives birth and brings forth a new day, filled with the joy of the morning, teeming with potential, not yet worn down by the day. We see here people willing and ready to give up their entire lives in service of this one Lord. He's divisive. He has enemies and loyal followers, both at the same time. This psalm is pushing forward to a Messiah, the Christ, the Lord Jesus. The psalm anticipates him, the one who holds all authority in heaven and earth. And I wonder if you've heard this saying before, that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Those who hold the levers of power and do so without accountability, find themselves in positions of temptation. Temptation beyond the capacity to resist. But here is a figure that wields power, absolute power. Yet he remains uncorrupted. He is absolutely good. And so this is Christmas. Presented to us on the pages of history, a child born, but one born who is both human and divine. A child born, yes, a child, but one who holds in his grasp absolute power. This is the rule of David's Lord. There are many things that are stunning and compelling about Jesus. One of them is the way he holds together characteristics that would not ordinarily go together. And this psalm is actually one of the places that draws that out more than a lot of the other places in the Bible. It's uniquely special in that way. And we've already seen a few of those things, haven't we? He's both a human king, flesh and blood descendant of David, Yet he's fully divine. He's God. And we've also seen that he's a ruler that wins people over who will give themselves freely to him. Yet he's also a just and decisive judge. There's a verse that stands out in Psalm 110. I wonder if you picked it as we read it out. It's Psalm 4. Uh, Sorry, it's verse 4. It says this. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We've seen 
really clearly already that this psalm presents the rule of David's Lord, the, the rule of Christ. Yet the psalm also includes this verse about his priesthood. See, David's Lord is both king and priest. Two things that you would not expect to see in one person. In the nation of Israel, these were two separate offices that represented two different institutions in the life and nation of Israel, each of them with their particular purpose and function uh, for it. The king, on the one hand, represented the law and rule of God. The king was to execute God's law, to enforce them. The king would punish those who would disobey. But the priest, on the other hand, would offer the forgiveness of God. They would receive the offerings of the people and present them to God and secure the forgiveness of the one offering the sacrifice. You could say that a king would be the one representing God to the people, but the priest would be presenting the people to God. And David's psalm here is telling us something so unexpected, so utterly out of this world. He's telling us that his Lord, the Lord Jesus, will be both. He'll be the absolute ruler of the universe, execute justice, enforce the rule. Yet he'll also be a priest who will offer forgiveness two seemingly opposite features contained in the one Lord. In the nation of Israel, there were people who would hold the office of priest. It would be their day job, their nine to five. And it was determined by God that those who belonged to the, dry, to the tribe of Levi would make up that workforce. And so it was a Levitical priesthood after the order of Levi. But David's Lord in Psalm 110, look at the end of verse 4 there, is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's a Melchizedekian priest. Now, Melchizedek is kind of like a Star Wars character. Uh, if someone asked me to list out all the characters I can remember from Star Wars, I reckon I'd struggle uh, once I get to about the four or five mark. There's Anakin Skywalker, Darth Vader, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Yoda... And then I run dry after that. But if you were to ask a diehard Star Wars fan, uh, have you ever had the chance to meet one of those people before? Those absolute diehard Star Wars fans. They mention characters that I've never heard of before. And I've seen all the movies. I'm sure they're making, up, making it up half the time. I just, you know, as you do, nod your head and uh, pretend like you know what they're talking about. Melchizedek is kind of like that. He shows up kind of unexpectedly in one chapter of the Old Testament scriptures. It's back there in Genesis 14 that unless you had spent your life deeply studying the Old Testament, you'd probably forgotten he was there at all. He gets maybe two or three mentions. But here he is. And David's Lord is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. How strange. 
but it's telling us something quite significant about Jesus. It means that David's Lord is going to be a non-Levitical priest. He's going to be of a different order. The New Testament author of the book of Hebrews picks up on this idea, actually, almost with a bit of tongue-in-cheek as well. Because we have such little detail about the life of Melchizedek, we, we actually know nothing of his death. His death is not recorded in the Hebrew Scriptures. So you could say, tongue-in-cheek, that Melchizedek never died. And so David's Lord will be like that. Although not tongue-in-cheek, but in reality, he will be an eternal priests. You see, priests in the order of Levi, the Levitical priesthood, they lived, they paid their service, retired and died. And then the next generation would pick up the reins and continue that work. But a priest in the order of Melchizedek is a priest that will never die. It's a priest that will remain a priest forever which is exactly what we need isn't it last I checked 100% of people will die but if we have a priest who remains forever there's, there's something our hope can attach it to that lasts beyond the grave But as best as I can understand this psalm, there's actually something more significant about this priest. And it has to do with his geography, actually. See, the Levitical priests, the other thing about them was that geographically they were located in Israel on the ground at the temple. Where's this priest located? Where's David's Lord located? Well, verse 1, he's located the right hand of God. Here's a priest who will bring his people clothed in garments of holiness right into the very presence of God. Right to his very presence, to his right hand. Here is something so completely and utterly compelling about Jesus, according to this psalm. He's the king. He is the rule of God. And he will execute justice, he will rule, and will right wrong and judge his enemies. And as sinners, we ought not think that we can approach him. Yet, he's a priest. He wants to draw us in. He wants us near. And what was the sacrifice he gave for us to do that? Was it a lamb that he brought to the temple on our behalf? Was it our record of righteous living, the moral standards that we've kept? No, Jesus gave himself. Jesus gave himself up as the sacrifice on our behalf. He is both priest and sacrifice at the same time. 
He willingly went to his death. And in his death, he took on himself the wrath and judgment reserved for sinners. And having paid the price, we can draw near to him. And he can bring us right into the presence of God. Let's bring this thing to a close. And here's the crunch of this psalm. The essence of what God wants for us this morning. Hope is found right here. It's found in a king sitting at the right hand of almighty God in heaven. And it's found in a priest who has done everything we need, everything necessary to bring us near, to make us his own. This is the hope a weary and anxious and fearful world needs. But here's where the rubber hits the road. I'm at that stage of life where I have three kids under the age of four. Yep, it's wild. Uh, we were at a beach recently, uh, and swimming in the moving water is still quite a new experience for our kids. The waves can come and catch them off guard and put their head under the water very quickly. It's not the most relaxing experience for a parent. So basically, the whole time, I'm holding their hands firmly. But from my child's perspective... They can have one of two things, but they can't have both. They could choose control, the ability to determine their own path, their own way around the water, to move away from me and tough it out on their own. No parent to hold their hand or tell them what to do. They could choose control or they can choose safety to feel secure and at ease, to have their father's hand firmly grasping theirs, to know that even if the worst of ways were to come and knock them a little bit, that they're still safe. They can choose control or safety. They can't have both. And I want to suggest that it's the same with our hope. You can choose one of two options. You can't have both. You can choose control, the ability to call the shots for your own life, the ability to live your own way, to move away from God when it's convenient to, the, to your other life ambitions or, or when things get uncomfortable. No God to tell you what to do with your time or money or life. You can choose control. Or you can have hope, real, steadfast, immovable hope, knowing that you are firmly in the grip of the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, knowing that the one who holds absolute power in the universe, the Lord Jesus, will never leave you. He will never let you go knowing that he has done everything necessary to bring you into the very presence of God. You cannot have both. You cannot continue to 
be the Lord of your own life and wish that you have the hope that Jesus holds out to you. You must give yourself freely, completely, to the Lord here who offers hope to you. And the hope that he offers to you is out of this world. It is incorruptible, unchangeable, life-changing, life-giving hope. And so that's the offer held out to each one of us. In a world that is fearful, in a world that is anxious, we have to be willing to take the crown off our own head and allow this Lord Jesus to be our King. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, you have loved us everlastingly, unchangeably. May we love you as we are loved. You have given yourself for us. May we give ourselves to you. You have died for us. May we live for you. In every moment of our time, in every movement of our minds, in every pulse of our hearts. May we never dally with the world and its allurements, but walk by your side, listen to your voice, be clothed with your graces, and adorned with your righteousness. Amen.